Hi. Hello. Good morning, Imran. It's Ruby. Hi, Ruby. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, so that's that's recording now. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> um, and can you tell me a little bit about where you are at the moment? So I live in Chicago. I live in uptown. It's a very beautiful day here. It's sunny and it's not raining today, so it's it's good. <laughs> From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Since the US resettlement deal, more than 700 refugees have left Manus Island and Nauru to find sanctuary in America. But the coronavirus shutdown has left many of these people isolated and without work or support. Imran Muhammad spent five years on Manus Island. He wrote recently in the Saturday paper about how isolation has brought back memories of the detention he thought he had escaped. Imran, I'd like to go back. Can you tell me about about when you first found out about the US resettlement deal and what you thought at that time? It was 2017. I received my paper, but I didn't believe it. I didn't express my happiness in front of my friend. I went back to my room and I just jumped. We in the United States have agreed to consider referrals from UNHCR on refugees now residing in Nauru and in uh, Papua New Guinea. I was detained for more than seven years. So holding that paper in my hand was just beyond world. The United Nations Refugee Agency says the deal is a much-needed long-term solution, but there should be options for everyone on Manus and Nauru. Even if the US fulfilled its promise and took 1,250 of them, there'd be 400 who'd still need resettling. It's a ticket to my freedom. And that's all I wanted in my life. But, you know, there are many other refugees who are waiting too. So, you know, it's... Every step was difficult. What would you like people to know about what life was like on Manus Island? I was taken to Manus in 2013. I was 19 when I was there. And I was there for five years. I, I lost many precious years from my life. You know, there were many refugees from many countries. Every one is different. Everyone has a story to tell. And then everyone has suffered differently from that place because, you know, the intention was so cruel. And um, the men became so depressed during their time on Manos, they lost their hope. And, you know, it's, uh, they didn't feel like that they were human. Every day was different. They came up with some ideas every single day to make us suffer, emotionally and mentally. It was something that I just didn't expect from Australia because, you know, I came to Australia to seek safety. Can you tell me about the plane trip to America? We were so happy we couldn't sleep because we knew that we'd leave that hellhole. I was at the airport in the morning with some of my friends and we were saying goodbye to PNG after almost five years. 
it was uh, one of the happiest day in my life. <laughs> I never imagined that I would ever live in America. When I landed in LA, there was a security guard. Uh, I will never forget his words. He he said, "Welcome to your new home," and it was the, the most beautiful thing that someone said to me. So from LA, you went to Chicago. Can you tell me a bit about your first impressions of the city? I came with one of my friends in Chicago, and uh, we have been living together because we were on Manos and in the camps. I was really, really overwhelmed. I, I didn't feel anything, but uh, I was welcomed by my caseworker. She was at the airport, and... Um, we came home, my caseworker gave us a tour of the apartment and she gave us the keys. <laughs> and uh, okay, now we have keys. So it, it was strange. It was uh, a bit scary to be free. I mean, you know, we want to be free, but we became used to living in a confinement than being free. The next morning, at, uh, we left our apartment. We couldn't sleep. <laughs> and we talked shit all night. And we left our apartment in the morning. And we just walked. We had no idea where we were going. <laughs> uh, my friend and I got lost for five times, I guess, in two weeks. And uh, we didn't know how to get back to our apartment. <laughs> and Imran, tell me briefly what it was like when coronavirus hit. It was very unexpected. You know, there were so many rumours and, and, you know, it's, uh, people were getting sick. We didn't think that it would happen. I was unprepared. I, I, I think everyone was unprepared. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Imran, in 2017, you were told that you were getting out of detention on Manus Island and would be able to resettle in the US. You've been there for two years now. Can you tell me a bit about what it's been like? Back home, I didn't go to school at all. So I had no idea how things work. And also it's a different country. And it took me a long time to, you know, understand the system. I'm still learning and I know there, there is so much more to learn. 
So I completed my high school diploma in just nine months and I was uh, very happy. It was my first certificate in my life and I was, I was the first one in my family to have a high school diploma. Congratulations. <laughs> and I started taking my college classes uh, this spring. So it was my first semester. Do you know what you want to do after college? I've been thinking about different fields. There are so many options. <laughs> it's quite overwhelming. And um, I was thinking about law and I was thinking about social justice. And then I, was, I started thinking about nursing. I started taking uh, biology, statistics and English 101 and fine art. The professor are very patient and helpful, so they helped me a lot. You know, I need to get an education because I knew that it was the only thing that would uh, open my doors and give me an opportunity to be a voice for other people. Tell me about how coronavirus has changed um, your studies. Uh, so all of a sudden, uh, in March, I received an email and the school said school would be closed for a whole week. Chicago is another area that needs a lift as coronavirus case numbers continue to climb. It was unexpected. We didn't have any information about coronavirus at that time in March. I was receiving tons of emails from school and from friends and it was overwhelming. To avoid the loss of potentially tens of thousands of lives, we must enact an immediate stay-at-home order for the state of Illinois. They were trying to conduct the classes remotely, and uh, I had to teach myself lots of new things about internet, about Zoom, about all these things. And I was scared, and I thought I would not be able to, you know, complete my courses. There were many students who dropped out because they were just freaked out. It was the same for me, but I just said, no, I can't give up. The coronavirus interrupted everything. I mean, everything. I used to see my friends and, and I love going to school. And now I can't do any of it. Can I ask you if it's okay? How, how has that made you feel? I feel like, you know, I'm <laughs> back in detention again because I'm just at home all day, all night. It's, things feel pointless at times. You know, my uh, mood fluctuates a lot. I lived in many detention centres and, you know, I, I was so strong in those places. But when I got my freedom, I thought I would never, ever experience that isolation again in my life but now I'm struggling with my old memories because all those uh, traumas are coming back sometimes so I'm struggling with two things with the current situation and with my old memories and I think everyone is uh, older men who are on manos and in other camps they're struggling in, in so many different ways. Do you stay in touch with other refugees who have also been resettled in America and can you tell me about how they're coping with the pandemic? So there are many refugees who are very vulnerable and they don't know how to apply for uh, their unemployment benefits and their employees are not helping them. They're working for their companies for a long time and, you know, they were just left with nothing. I tried to help, and but I needed their papers, documentations, 
and they couldn't read their documents and they had no idea what I was talking about and they couldn't send me their papers and I couldn't help them. I'm wondering if you can tell me what your thoughts are about Australia now? I'm I'm still shocked because you know there are just a handful of refugees who are just stuck in detention. You know, there are just a handful of refugees in Port Mosby, in Nauru, and in Australia. I mean, I just feel overwhelmed and I feel guilty to be free from time to time. I just want the Australian government to change their policy. I mean, it's their country. If they want to have policies in place, that's fine, but we are human and our human rights should be respected and protected. And their brothers and sisters who are yeah, living in detention for nearly eight years. I just can't forget it. And I, I will not forgive them either until all of them are free. Imran, can you tell me what you're hoping now for, for your own future? I'm very grateful to be free. And, you know, I, had, I have lots of Australian friends and uh, they have worked for my freedom for a long time and they are still fighting for my friends' freedom. I will never forget their support and their love. And in my new home, I am loved and it's beautiful here. People are kind and I do see a bright future ahead of me. It's not going to be easy, but the good thing is that things can be done. It's possible. I have control over my life. I just have to remain positive and keep moving forward. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Imran. Thank you for your time. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays. But her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news, a Labor-led coronavirus parliamentary committee will seek to compel the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, to explain how the JobKeeper wage subsidy program was overestimated by $60 billion. Late on Friday, it was revealed that the government has revised JobKeeper from costing $130 billion down to $70 billion. Labor, unions and advocacy groups are now calling on the government to expand JobKeeper to include more workers. The Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, has announced a further easing of restrictions in the state. People will be allowed to have up to 20 people in their homes and to stay overnight at private residences and tourist accommodation from the 1st of June. Some entertainment and cultural venues will also be reopened with limited numbers, but those who can work from home will be urged to continue to do so. And the Northern Territory Government has confirmed restrictions on travel within the Territory will be lifted almost two weeks ahead of schedule. The Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, said that biosecurity zones, which limit travel to remote communities, will be removed on June 5. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. 
see you tomorrow.